Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Ed McGuinness to the show. Ed McGuinness is CEO of Curio, a nuclear innovation and technology development company. A 30-year veteran of the Department of Energy, Ed previously served as Assistant Secretary of the Office of Nuclear Energy and Executive Director of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. Thank you very much for your time. Ed, thank you for your time. Ed, before we dig into Curio, I'd like to start with a question that perhaps on its surface sounds a little lighthearted, but I believe it's integral to our conversation. What are your thoughts about the media's role and maybe a little bit more lighthearted measure? Let's add the Simpsons to the mix of how the public's perception has been shaped regarding nuclear energy. The media role is hugely important for so many different reasons. It's part of the fabric of our society. It's such an important means for communication and for the public to understand issues, whether they're straightforward or whether they're complicated. And of course, whether it's humor or whether it's um, very, very serious, it's, that all comes with the package too. Um, it's, it's funny, you, Simps- you mentioned the, the Simpsons, and that's a classic case where um, it, it's great to see um, entertainment out there, and it's great to see programs that are popular and that um, are humorous. But at the same time, some of the issues that they're touching upon are so incredibly important, such as nuclear's role, whether it's dealing with the existential threat that many people see of climate change and the importance of it um, playing a key role as a clean energy source, whether it's energy security, whether it is geostrategic, um, which nuclear is an absolute key um, element and tool in the geostrategic um, um, strategic chessboard, if you will. And so with regards to some of the shows, yes, humor sometimes attempts to um, over-stereotype or play into some of the stereotypes, correct or not correct. Um, but um, with certainly in, in some of the um, media and the cultural lore, nuclear has a very, very negative stereotype. But it really flies in the face of statistics and the reality. And that is nuclear energy is absolutely among the most safe um, energy sectors on the planet um, when you look at the, the, the overall data. And the, the absolute success in running tens and of years and decades um, with no incidents, which the vast majority of nuclear power plants, they're unsung heroes. They, the rain, sleet, or snow, they provide clean electricity generation um, 365 days a year. And um, perhaps sometimes we take it for granted. But um, nothing wrong with having humor. 
but it's very, very important for us to get the facts out so people understand when it touches their lives in a real serious way, which um, certainly does in the case of nuclear's role in, in dealing with climate change and energy security and geostrategic. It's really important that we get the good, accurate facts out there for the public to understand. It's interesting you mentioned unsung heroes. As I was doing preparation for the show, I started to think myself about my exposure to news about nuclear. And you're right. On one end of the spectrum, we have the humor. So we have the Simpsons. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have essentially, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So you have Chernobyl, you have Fukushima, you have these dramatic stories about nuclear accidents. But to your other point, 40, 50 years of unsung heroes, just boring working in the background. You also mentioned statistics and data. Can you share with the audience some examples regarding just how much power in the U.S. is generated by nuclear and how safe it's been? Yes. Uh, all the electricity generating in total in the United States going into homes and factories and businesses, nearly 20% of the electricity is generated from the 93 nuclear reactors that are operating in this country as, as we speak. And from a clean electricity generation, non-carbon emission generation perspective, it is the single largest electricity generator of clean electricity, bar none, much larger than wind and solar and even hydro. And so we see nuclear energy as a key climate fighting partner with the other renewables. So from a statistics perspective, it's incredibly important. The unsung heroes, again, how many people realize, um, particularly those that are really concerned about the climate, that over 50% of the electricity we consume, and we've never consumed more electricity in the history of mankind, and it's increasing um, substantially each year, the electri electrification of our economy, um, and therefore the dependence um, of on electricity. And then what type of electricity? Is it is it clean electricity generation? Is it carbon emitting? So it's incredibly important, particularly for those who really deeply, deeply care um, about what's going on with our climate, what's going on with energy security, and what's going on with the reliability and resilience of electricity as we increase that generation. And you want to talk about um, unsung heroes too. A lot of people don't realize that um, nuclear applications, radiological applications, first of all, we live I mean, the sun. We, we get radiation every day from the sun. It's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, we live with uh, radiation every day, um, just like anything in life. Um, too much of anything is not good, but a certain amount can be very good. Um, uh, fighting cancer, for example, targeted alpha therapy, Curio, the company I represent, we have a very exciting focus among, in addition to recycling our what has been described as our nation's nuclear waste, but it's anything but nuclear waste. It is a highly valuable, largely un untapped from an energy value, um, clean um, energy resource for our country. But we, we are using um, radiological isotopes every day to fight cancer in the, and to save lives. Um, even in the food and radiation business, um, when I was at the, the United, United Nations meeting, I was reminded that every McDonald's French fry is irradiated to make sure it's safe to consume. 
So every day we rely on the role of nuclear in so many different ways, space-based, um, the only two um, man-made objects ever to reach interstellar space, still sending signals back to us based on a plutonium-238 source that the Idaho National Labs in, in Lab and the Department of Energy um, provided and, and developed, Mars rovers. So it's one of those things getting back to getting the information out to let everybody know, the public, just how extensive and how um, integral um, nuclear, um, the role of nuclear is played um, throughout society to help um, make our, our lives better. Well, you and I both mentioned Curio. Can you give an overview of Curio and your role at the organization? Yes, thank you very much. I'm the CEO of Curio, and Curio um, has um, really three um, different business areas and lines of focus. First and foremost uh, is the focus on recycling our nation's used nuclear fuel. That is at 75 locations in 35 states around the country, essentially stranded right now, um, in large part due to the policy, policy decisions going back to the 70s under Carter, where they decided to um, no longer allow recycling of the used nuclear fuel. And the minute they decided to not allow recycling of our nuclear fuel, um, it essentially um, made it a waste. Um, it turned it into basically a liability and a waste. But the nuclear fuel that is, is run in our reactors around the country today, all the way up to today, only consumes about 4% of the energy value by the time it is the fuel is taken out of the reactors and put in a spent fuel pool. And um, without recycling, you're literally taking fuel out in this particular fission process in our nuclear reactors at its one of its highest levels of radiotoxicity of that fuel. It's, and so to, to not recycle it, it's pretty much the worst of all times not to recycle it because then you have this material and at one of its highest levels of radiotoxicity. And now your plan is to put it into Mother Earth. And guess what? When you take, if you don't re recycle it and you put it in at that stage of radiotoxicity and radioactivity, the material is going to remain radiotoxic and not appropriate for humans to be exposed to for 130,000 years. Wow. And um, we hear about 10,000 because that was the NRC requirement for Yucca Mountain, the repository that was going to be used, but politically un unworkable now, as said by multiple administrations. And so it, it, when you don't recycle it, you have such a monumental problem. It's hard for even the public to get their arm head around it. But it's no wonder that Nevada absolutely said no. And it's no wonder that you don't see communities raising their hands up to want to be a site for consolidated interim storage if you're telling them the material is going to be there at a highly radioactive level um, for um, as far as they can imagine civilization going, 130,000 years. And when you flip it and when you, when you realize that if you recycle it, you're literally eliminating that long-lived multi-thousand decade um, radio um, toxicity and you're consuming it. And the only thing you would be left with with our new cycle approach, which is the Curio's for um, primary focus right now, we've developed a new technology. It's a unique technology 
where it would be a, a plant the size of a football field only, and we would be able to process all of our nation's nuclear, use nuclear fuel um, within under 30 years. And when we recycle it, the only thing we would have left that is high-level radioactive waste is 4% of that original 100% that otherwise we're dealing with for a Yucca Mountain or another repository. And even for that 4%, which we call fission products, we may actually be able to use that and um, in industry today. That 4% fission product, if we had to store it until it's safe for people to be exposed to it, it would only be 300 years, as I said, a totally different calculus. With the fission products, though, that 300-year um, amount of material, the 4%, we're even hearing now from transformational battery companies and others that they're saying, hey, not so fast, Curio. Don't, don't think about throwing that away. We can use that as well because we're developing batteries where we could use the heat coming off the fission products that can last 300 years. And those could be batteries that could last, outlive they could literally be generating electricity for 150 to 300 years. Think about that. These would be batteries where they would outlive the users um, and certainly outlive the uh, the iPhone or um, any electronics, the microelectronics that would be uh, powered by a small um, nuclear battery of this type. So there are a lot of innovative products coming out of our process uh, for recycling. But getting back to your point about what is Curio, um, Curio is focusing on recycling our nation's used nuclear fuel, maximizing the commoditization, the monetization of every atom, every isotope possible from that used nuclear fuel. When we do that and we turn it into a business and a business where we're converting it into things like clean electricity, um, medical fighting, um, I, you know, um, therapies via isotopes, space-based power sources, and other things. When we're doing that, we're essentially relieving the taxpayer of this legacy burden that is on them now. Because right now, it's a government-led solution by the Department of Energy per law. And the amount of money that they're spending and the amount forecasted to to treat this 10,000, 130,000-year problem is um, mind-boggling, literally. Um, they're estimating that just one of the repositories, the Yucca Mountain, that, which would not even have been enough to store even the current amount that we have now, be about $100 billion. And that was from 2008 estimate. And at the same time, we're paying almost a billion dollars a year through court-assessed fines for failing as a government to pick up the used nuclear fuel from the utilities after having charged the utilities and the ratepayers for the repository that's not been built. So if that, it's just basically we have hundreds of billions of dollars really barreling down as a, as a bill to the taxpayer if we don't allow innovative, entrepreneurial-based, smart, efficient um, solutions starting with treating this as a valuable asset and not a waste. And that's what Curio's overall approach is. We, are, we have a design, we have a patent filed, and the facility is the size of a football field. And the facility would process about 4,000 metric tons a year. And the facility 
is designed to be even uh, co-located with what the U.S. government is attempting to do right now, and that is find a pathway for consolidated and armed storage to try and at least get the used nuclear fuel that is scattered in 75 locations around the country into a single location. Well, the Department of Energy issued an RFI, a request for interest around the country, asking if any state or local community would be interested in hosting such a consolidated and armed storage site. Um, it, it appears that there's not been much of a response or interest at this time. And we're hearing from states, many of them saying it's because they do not want to be the site of material that's going to be sitting there um, at highly radioactive for 100,000 years plus. But if they see a combination of pairing it up with a recycling facility where that, is, that won't be the case, and at most you'll have 4% of that waste for 300 years in fission products, and then you have a facility that would turn the state that has a location into one of the, into the largest clean nuclear uh, fuel supplier in the country as a result of this extraction for fuel for the reactors. It's a completely different proposition. So where are you on the journey for government approval to use the spent nuclear fuel? Well, as you may know, um, right now, Congress has in law, um, law that is the Nuclear Policy Act, Nuclear Waste Policy Act, that says that um, we have a one-street fuel cycle, that the nuclear material will not be recycled, but it will be, to, it will be put into a geologic repository after um, once the fuel is run once through in a nuclear reactor even though you still have 96% of the energy value. And Yucca Mountain is listed as that location. Um, the um, Biden administration, even the, the tail end of the Trump administration, and certainly the Obama administration, all have said that's not politically workable. And that even though it's in law, uh, Yucca Mountain is not politically workable because of Nevada uh, stakeholders and leadership um, opposing it so vigorously over the years. So that Nuclear Waste um, Policy Act is going to have to be changed one way or another, even if it's just for the, like the Biden administration's plans for desire to have interim consolidated interim storage. So for Curio, yes, we would, we would need to see, um, in order for us, our business line to be um, realized, the Nuclear Waste Policy Act will need to be adjusted to allow um, a commercial solution to the used nuclear fuel, um, including taking title at a facility um, where the at this nuclear recycling facility that we call our design is called New Cycle, and um, again that that's that football size field uh, facility, and so we would need to see adjustments to the the legislation, and we see strong strong support in Congress strong and broad, um, and certainly openness to the idea that, wait a minute, we're in a different age here. Um, we don't have an infinite, um, infinite amount of resources. We need to think about recycling. We need to think about circular economies, uh, circular business models, where we don't consume more than we, we, we don't produce um, or consume in a manner where we're out of balance with nature and where we're consuming more than is available in, in um, nature, whether it's consuming uh, plastics. Well, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna produce plastics, you should have a sustainable approach where it's not just increasing over time. 
And we need to have the same thing for nuclear. We need to recycle. We need to think about our consumption rate. And we, sh- and we should not assume that um, we can just infinitely generate waste to stick into Mother Earth and that we should have a closed fuel cycle where we can produce the, the very energy we need in a recycling format. So that's, that's our business model. And we believe there's great receptivity in Congress um, to recognize this used nuclear fuel, this what's called waste, as really the single largest uh, stockpile of clean energy waiting to be tapped in our country. So let's both be optimists for a moment. Let's say that you are able to eventually source spent nuclear fuel. I'm looking at your website. You have, I think, one, two, three, four, five projects here that are listed. How would you prioritize these projects? And if you're talking about projects from products coming out of our new cycle facility, or you're talking about our work on advanced um, reactors and nuclear medicine as well? Both. Uh huh. So um, first of all, the new cycle facility is designed um, with, like I said, maximizing product extraction. And as we do that, we're literally getting a win-win because we, as we do that, we are we are eliminating the high radioactive, highly radioactive material that's going to last for thousands of years. We have at least five products that we have developed now um, and have um, done a lot of due diligence on that will that will come out of this single facility that consists, by the way, of very innovative, um, modular, um, integrated, semi-autonomous, um, compact um, units that would process this used nuclear material. Um, and we would generate at least five products, and we may have more, like I said, with um, transformational batteries, for example. But the first, first and foremost, the first product to come out of this um, would be what's called UF6. It's, it's enriched uranium, and it would be enriched at the level that our nuclear reactors in this country use. So we would take this used fuel that's run through a nuclear reactor, and then, and I think a great obvious concept, you recycle it and extract the um, unused uranium, enriched uranium U-235, and then you reprocess it as fuel to go back in the reactor. Like I said, this is a circular economy approach. Instead of just continuing to just continue to mine uranium, continue to extract more material as if it's infinite, um, we're actually having a circular closed fuel cycle approach where we're, we're actually consuming what we produce and produce what we're consuming, which is a beautiful thing, what I think we need to do. So the first product is what we call LEU, low enriched uranium, the fuel that would go, that would be provided to our nation's reactors. Right now, people don't realize it, but um, the 93 reactors that we have in our country that provides that 20% of our electricity, we rely almost 100% on foreign supplied uranium and nuclear fuel. That should be shocking to people. And that, but that's the reality. That's how much our nuclear industry has deteriorated from an infrastructure perspective. Ironically, we still have the largest market in the world. And that's one reason why foreign, mostly state-owned nuclear supply countries clamor to get in our market because we're the largest market. And ironically, we have no domestic suppliers that are American-owned 
We have one, fortunately, in New Mexico that is European-owned um, in Eurinco, LES it's called, and that's really good, but that's not enough. Um, we, we are 20% of our nuclear fuel for our fleet of reactors to this day comes from Russia. How's that as a wake-up call? But that's how, where we are. So if once we start this first product line with, with um, extracting fuel from our, our waste smartly, our used fuel, we, this one facility will provide 40% of today's nuclear fleet market requirements annually, 40% from one facility. The second product line is what we call transuranic-based fuel, true fuel. And that's where the magic happens, where you're taking this long, these long-lived radioactive isotopes and, and materials, and you're actually fashioning it into fuel that could be consumed as electricity clean. And while you're doing it, the magic of fission and decay and transmutation, you're literally getting rid of that high-level radioactive waste, with the exception of 4%. So the second business line would be this advanced transuranic-based fuel that will be ready in time when advanced reactors, there are a large class of advanced reactors that are in the process of entering our market today, would be able to use that fuel. The third product line is space-based um, power source and fuel sources. Most people don't, don't realize, like, like, like I had mentioned, that um, in the space industry, nuclear and radiological sources are very, very important. Uh, the Mars rovers being powered by radiological thermoelectric generators, plutonium-238, interstellar space with Voyager aircrafts. We're going to see on moon, lunar, uh, lunar um, applications, kilo power and other different applications for power sources, and then fission-based. So there is a growing demand and growing market that doesn't have the supply that it needs um, through plutonium-238, among other things. And the used nuclear fuel is chock full of this material. It would be through a, a neptunium-237 extraction from this fuel, but the end result is you'll get plutonium-238 in a fission process. The fourth is the medical isotopes I had mentioned. This is in combination with an advanced reactor, such as one Curio is developing, which is another one of our business lines. It's a molten salt reactor. And um, longer term, we have a thorium-based molten salt reactor, and it's ideal to pair up with New Cycles recycling plant to extract, um, develop and extract or produce and extract um, vital uh, cancer-fighting um, isotopes uh, for targeted alpha therapy, for example. And the last one is, like I said, the fifth one is the transformational batteries that we're looking at. So those are the key products and overall, beyond the nuclear recycling, that is the first and foremost priority of Curio, we have two other business lines, as mentioned. One is advanced reactors. We have two designs under development. Like I said, one is a molten salt reactor, and another one is a thorium-based uh, molten salt reactor. And then we have the nuclear medicine and um, targeted alpha therapy business. So when are the plans for the first SMR? Well, the small modular reactors are part of that class of advanced reactors. I mentioned that wave that is coming in. And um, there are different types of small modular reactors. There's light water reactor, um, small modular reactors, like New Scale. And uh, New Scale is out of Corvallis, Oregon. 
um, and led by John Hopkins and a very, very good team out there. I've worked with them for years. And they're targeting to have their first uh, small modular reactor built and operating at Idaho National Lab um, in the next several years. I believe it is 2028 approximately or 2029 latest that they're hoping to have the first operation. We also see through what's called the Department of Energy's um, Advanced Demonstration Reactor Program, ARDP, um, the development of non-light water reactors, uh, some of which are small modular reactors, like X-Energy's um, reactor design, high temperature gas with um, triso fuels. And they are planning to have, I believe, their first one built in Washington in the Tri-City area. And they're shooting for, I believe, about 2028. And then you have TerraPower um, that in, may end up being um, a little larger and not classed as small modular reactor or a good bit larger. And they're planning to build their first one in about 2028 as well. So we see a lot of movement with advanced reactors and all those reactors and many more out there. I would say there's easily, you know, um, almost two dozen more U.S. Um, and other advanced reactors trying to enter the market in the coming decade. They're all going to need fuel. And, and, there, and a lot of them are going to need fuel that's not available in the market now. And this new cycle facility will be able to provide virtually all those types of fuels. It's very interesting. Now going back to the spent nuclear fuel, some of the concerns around security, when you're shipping these SNFs, what does that look like from a logistics standpoint? Yeah, um, use nuclear fuel when it's, a, when it's taken out of a, a spent fuel pool. And the spent fuel pool is the first place where used nuclear fuel is placed once it's pulled out of the reactor core after having been run for 18 to 24 months in a typical reactor in the U.S. So after it's pulled out of a reactor and then it's put into a spent nuclear fuel pool under, you know, where the water itself is is um, an ideal place for it to be to um, ensure its safety, among other things. Um, but at a certain time, after a number of years, they will pull that out and then put it in what's called dry cast storage. And these are very large, um, very reinforced, incredibly robust um, casks that have been regulated and licensed by the NRC and drop tested and, and just every conceivable way of it being um, kinetically impacted um, has been tested um, successfully. And that is where these fuel assemblies that are pulled out of the reactor, then put in that pool, then taken out in dry class storage, and they're put in these casks. And you'll see these casks, they stand vertically, cylindrically, um, on site where these nuclear reactors are. Those are the 75 locations pretty much that I'm talking about that are around the country because they have nowhere to go right now. And, and so... Um, but um, until the U.S. government, by law, retrieves the material or they change the law, and then they allow for an innovative approach like um, Curio's approach of recycling, which is an obvious no-brainer to do, in my humble opinion. But with regards to transportation and these casks, first of all, we transport used nuclear fuel or what's called waste, and waste and spent fuel, whatever you call it. That material has been, um, we transport that type of material around the country every day uh, for defense purposes. Um, we have, what, uh, approximately 100 um, uh, nuclear-powered submarines. Um, those, react, those submarines have to be, um, re, um, you know, the fuel has to be taken offloaded when the subs are decommissioned or when there's refueling. 
they have to go to location um, in certain part, in a part one part of the country, um, and it's done safely and securely on rail, on trucks, and um, the Department of Energy's NNSA. They do this uh, on a regular basis, so we know how to transport use nuclear fuel safely and securely. We've been doing it for decades, so I have no doubt, and I'm confident that we can um, securely and safely transport this material once the material is consolidated and at a site such as Curio's new cycle facility and safely and securely disposition and even eliminate this high level of radioactive waste that we're trying to deal with. Now, you mentioned co-locating with some of the existing facilities. How do you... So NIMBYism is alive and well. What is the plan to overcome some of the NIMBYism that's out there right now? Well, I think it's, it's pretty obvious and straightforward. One is make sure that we are doing things in, a, in a, a sensible, logical, mutually beneficial way. And what I mean by that is I believe one of the reasons why you have the NIMBY, not in my backyard, um, is because the proposition is so difficult to swallow. The proposition of we would like you to consider hosting high-level radioactive waste for not only 10,000 years, because that just happens to be the NRC's license requirement for safely securing, but 130,000. That's a pretty difficult thing. And it's reasonable to understand why you could have this NIMBY um, a, you know, effect or reaction, because who, who would want material there longer than you can maybe even conceive civilization being around, much less your kids or your kids' kids? I mean, we during the Department of Energy days years ago, um, there was a, a significant uh, multi-million dollar project funded just to simply have our scientists um, come up with a form of communication that would be understood in 10,000 years. What's the language? What's the <laughs> communication? They couldn't even agree on that. So why are you going to expect communities to, to, to be, um, you know, interested as important as it is, and to say that this will be safe and secure, it's a very difficult thing to ask an average person to accept. But if you apply recycling to it, where you, you, you show them that this material, only 4% will be there for 300 years at most, a, much, a tiny fraction of it, and maybe not even that, and that the material will be um, eliminated on site within 30 to 50 years, certainly all the waste we have in our country, the use nuclear fuel. And on top of it, this is going to be a facility that is going to be a powerhouse of clean energy, a powerhouse for um, isotope production for fighting cancer, a powerhouse for space-based sources of um, energy, and a powerhouse for long generational jobs. This Our one facility is estimated to have about 3,500 um, well-paying jobs direct and then about the same amount downstream. So if you go to a NIMBY community and say, well, this is a completely different scenario we're talking about. We're talking about a recycling plant where this state, once that plant is up and running, our plant would process about 4,000 metric tons a year. That would the first product line would be about 800 metric tons of the equivalent of uranium nuclear fuel that would power reactors. 
that would power 40% of our nation's reactors, where that plant would be, that state would become overnight when that plant starts operating, the single biggest clean um, power supplier for electricity in our country and one of the largest in the world. That's a completely different proposition than saying, hey, would you like, would you be interested in us putting this in there indefinitely with none of the products coming out, none of the revenue generated. And on top of that, we have a business um, proposed approach where whatever community um, would host it um, should receive approximately a billion dollars a year or some substantial benefit coming from the nuclear waste fund um, to show um, you know, serious um, partnership with that community. And there's a way to do it without depleting um, even the, the, um, the waste fund as we have it today. But right now, the, the, the financing is also incredible. If the NIMBY um, communities not only you know, are focused on dealing with that 10,000-year, 130,000-year problem they want nothing uh, to do with, and then they see the financial situation where right now we've collect, we have a nuclear waste fund to pay for a repository that would be in their backyard. And that's not even enough for half of it, half of one, one of these sites. And we already, Yucca Mountain that was designed and legislatively set at 70,000 metric tons. We have 86,000 metric tons today, adding 2,000 metric tons a year. So even if Yucca Mountain, which is not, it's not, there's no viable path forward now, but a, a Yucca Mountain type repository would not even be enough for, for um, to, to store all of the material. And so you would need, um, you're going to need at least two, maybe even three repositories. In 2008, the Department of Energy with a $100 billion estimate for one of these, it, the the amount of money being spent is 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 mind boggling, and so our our new cycle approach is dramatically and radically different. Um, we will dramatically save the taxpayer while at the same time being successful in business, where we get a win win win. Well, it does sound like a much more attractive proposal. So I want to turn the spotlight back on you for a moment. I'm looking at your bio here. Very interesting. Master of Arts, U.S. Foreign Policy and International Relations. How did you get involved at the DOE in international nuclear policy? That's a great question. Uh, serendipity. Serendipity. <laughs> and um, One of my favorite well, words. Yes. And I, I do a lot of mentoring. And serendipity is very important. And what you do with it when the serendipitous moments happen is really key. But I thought I was going to be in a diplomatic uh, career. Uh, or something along those lines, maybe national security. I went to American University Grad School, School of International Service. And um, I could never have um, you know, told you or predicted that um, I would be sitting here after 30 years in the Department of Energy, having worked in high science missions my entire life with a master's of arts and undergrad and bachelor <laughs> of arts. But um, it's called on-the-job training. And I guess I have enough decent aptitude to have picked up a lot. And I've um, ended up succeeding and moving up and leading. Um, I, but I've always taken the approach of never, ever, ever try and be someone you're not. Um, I revere scientists, um, engineers, but I also revere a diversity of knowledge and offices. 
And I've seen that firsthand where some of the, so I had my serendipitous moment um, after I graduated from American University or was about to graduate in graduate school, I was trying to get a job in, in DC and it felt like everybody had a job but me. Um, all I had is my thesis to write and I literally couldn't land a job um, in the career that I wanted. So I moved back home to New Orleans and literally I thought my career was going to go somewhere else in, in international hotel management. And then one day serendipity struck and we I'm in New Orleans managing a hotel and on the French in the French Quarter of all places, a luxury hotel on Bourbon Street, if you can believe it. And there's a Department of Energy conference, and I greeted as the assistant general manager. They had a delegation, and I told them I I went to grad school up in DC. He says, "What the heck are you doing down here?" I said, "Well, I couldn't land a job." And he said, "Well, that's crazy. Give me your resume." And within four weeks, I'm working at headquarters of the Department of Energy. He said, this is not the job you're going to be, want to be in forever, but you're going to get into a national security department. You're going to get your security clearance and the rest is up to you to work your magic. And so that, that was the beginning. And then the first half of my career, I worked my way into working nuclear security, nuclear nonproliferation, counter, counterproliferation, loose nukes type work, Russia, Ukraine, mostly Russia. Um, and then the second half of my career was nuclear energy. Under Bush, I was asked to stand up the international part of what's called GNEP, Global Nuclear Energy Partnership, which ironically is predicated on the same uh, recycling approach that Curio, my company, is focused on now, except industry-led and not government-led. So now you've transitioned to the private sector. It's been more on-the-job training what are some of the things you've learned in your transition? Oh, I am learning so much. On the one hand, um, I was thinking on-the-job on training would not be as significant because I've spent 30 years of my career mostly in nuclear, on one, whether it's the security side of the coin or the nuclear side of the coin. But it's all been government, even though I've worked closely with industry, done a lot of advocacy, senior level overseas around the world, working closely with U.S. nuclear companies, I can't tell you how much of um, an eye-opener it has been to work in the private sector. Some of the most basic things that I thought were as, as basic as one plus one equals two. Um, obvious, what I thought was obvious. Intuitive, what I thought was intuitive. When it comes to my perception of how the private sector works, in particular in nuclear, um, and innovative sectors um, and what we're seeing that's changing so much of our society and that is these very innovative uh, disruptive startups whether it's we've seen it with SpaceX and others and and um, I think we're in a, about to see it with nuclear and with curio we we actually believe nuclear um, the nuclear energy sector we want to be a part of literally what we say Teslify uh, the nuclear sector and it's ripe to be Teslified it's ripe to be um, disrupted in a very, very positive way. But getting back to, to your, your point, um, they're going into private sector. Um, frankly, I realized how many decisions um, and um, actions I took um, in government, as well intended as they, they, have, they were, how, how much I actually didn't fully appreciate from the private sector. Um, and I'm getting that now. And now that I'm on the other side of the coin, an example is innovation. Um, 
we, what I see now is a huge number of um, small capitalized, small startup companies attempting to get into the nuclear market with, with various, some very exciting, some hugely impactful concepts and technologies, whether it's 3D printing of a micro reactor, whether it's cutting edge for medical isotopes to, to fight and cure cancer, or whether it's space-based power sources, um, you name it, or advanced reactors, very cool, um, very disruptive. But a lot of these ideas are not resonant in just the large companies that have been around for decades. In fact, what, what we have seen, like with SpaceX and Tesla and others, is that these small startups can come and completely not only contribute, but be incredibly competitive with large established companies and actually change life as we know it in so many ways, society, like, um, like I said, like with Tesla, like with Apple, like with, um, frankly, Microsoft early on with Bill Gates. So the, the whole idea of government trying to make room for innovative companies and not just, for example, instinctively um, want to make sure that if you allocate government funds for, let's say, a contract, my instinct is I want to save the taxpayer, protect the taxpayer, and take the least risk with the taxpayer dollars. That may mean that we continue to give the money to large companies. But the problem is if, let's say, you get $4 billion from Congress, and it's up to us to decide how we're going to distribute it, partnering with other companies, I might say, well, I have a, a choice. Spread the butter thin or just concentrate it on two slices of bread, and then I'll get more out of it, more guaranteed. Well, you know, I think that's been the approach, and that is don't spread the butter too thin. Don't take the $4 billion and then, and then award like a small amount to 40 companies. Take it and concentrate it and give it to like two or four. And then when you do that, you end up gravitating towards the big older companies and you end up freezing out, for example, and shutting out all of these innovative companies. And part of the venture capitalists and others are going to say, wait a minute, why should I be going with your small innovative company when the government just gave a $2 billion award to this big, um, the big, you know, player in that sector? So those are the types of things that I thought was intuitive, like, uh, no, don't spread the butter too thin. But it's that, and then I, in, in, at, at times you end up being unintentionally picking winners instead of trying to just clear the road for innovation. So if that makes sense, um, those are things that I've, I'm really starting to appreciate that where in government, I thought some actions that I, that my colleagues and I would take, they were obvious to do. And now it's like, no, that was not the obvious thing to do. And so I think the better we have streamlined communications between industry and government, and the better we understand the roles and try and have government do what it does best, um, but have, have industry do what it does best. Can you imagine even if we funded NASA three times over before SpaceX came and Elon Musk? I don't think NASA, even if it was funded three times what it got, would have been able to do what, what SpaceX has done and just completely um, turning on its head the, um, the space-based industry through reusable rockets. So industry has a vital role 
And it's vital for government, in my experience, to, to really make that extra effort to understand what makes the U.S. innovation sector tick and what, what can incentivize them instead of actually freezing them out. Absolutely makes sense. My next question is, you know, you mentioned closed loop, you mentioned recycling a few times. I think you kicked the conversation off with the words Mother Earth. What's your why? What draws you to this idea of doing well for the planet? Well, you know, the, why, the environment is, when I say Mother Earth, I think I'm saying what everybody says. We care about our planet. We want something where we can live, where it's a beautiful planet, it's healthy, and our kids and our kids' kids can enjoy that. And I have yet to find um, in either side um, people that, you know, disagree with that. And so well, what I want to do is, and part of that, my business is uh, whatever I want to, whatever we do um, in Curio, we want it to be good for our country and good for the planet. Well, since you mentioned kids, kids, let's fast forward to 2030. If Forbes, Fast Company, publication of your choice, were to write a headline about Curio Legacy, what would you like that headline to read? Curio realizes the mother load of clean energy for our nation. I like that. Curio realizes the mother load of clean energy for our nation. Very succinct. Very nice. So last question, and this could be professional. And you mentioned a serendipity earlier, managing a hotel and then 30 years later being a CEO of a nuclear company or a nuclear waste company. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom, and it could be professional or personal with the audience, what would it be? That uh, anybody can make a difference and never sell yourself short. Always have respect for uh, knowledge and and others. And um, empathy is really, really important. When you understand, it, when you make the effort to understand why and how people are doing things, groups, personal, professional, it helps you understand better. It empowers you more. But for me, words of wisdom is just, um, you know, it sounds silly, but be all you can be and, and don't think you can't be anything. I've worked for people, I've had people that work under me and literally I've told them that, um, listen, you could do my job, you could be Secretary of Energy, You're, you've got the capabilities, you could be president. So um, look at me, I grew up in a pretty much a blue collar neighborhood in New Orleans, Louisiana. I remember thinking um, in, in junior high school, telling someone, yeah, I, I want to be a diplomat. Um, I'm moving to Washington. They just started laughing. I may as well have said I was going to become, you know, uh, the first person on Mars. Um, but I like this, and, and I was never the, the top of the class or anything else, you know. And look, uh, my, almost my entire career, I went in with the non-traditional credentials. I was the one where people say, what's this guy doing here? But I worked my um, tail off. Um, I, I, I think I showed great respect for um, others and how they got there. And I acted like a sponge. And um, I wanted to learn and I wanted to make a difference. Well, Ed, I think Be All That You Can Be is a great place to end. I appreciate your time today, your continued success with Curio, and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you very much, Raj. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com 
or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.